The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Nowakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. Thank you all for tuning in. For those of you who have sent me a note about the podcast, I really appreciate the feedback. I've also received several questions, some of which I hope to tackle soon. And as temperatures start to heat up, I hope you are all having a great summer with time to spend with your family and friends. Finally, for those of you working the streets, thank you for all you do in keeping us safe. Oscar Wilde, a famous Irish author, poet, and playwright, is credited with saying the following, Experience is the hardest kind of teacher. It gives you the test first and the lesson afterward. Experience is often something a police officer will rely upon when articulating their reasonable grounds for acting, whether to search, detain, arrest, or use force. Experience, whether or not it is your own or someone else's, is also something we can learn from. In this episode, I will discuss a case from Quebec's Court of Appeal, cited as R.V. Leventis, 2022, QCCA 291. This case involved an officer trying to use his experience to help bolster an anonymous tip about drug dealing combined with his own observations to the reasonable ground standard in which an arrest would be justified. Pay careful attention to the facts of this case and the Court of Appeals' application of the law to the facts as it analyzed the totality of the circumstances, which included the officer's attempt to use his experience as the lens through which to view the facts and thereby meet the objective threshold for justifying the arrest. We can then use the lessons learned from this case to our own experiences moving forward. So what happened? The police received a 911 call from an anonymous tipster claiming that a man named Costa was selling drugs at a restaurant. The tipster provided a clothing description, age, and hair color of the man. Five minutes later, two patrol officers arrived on the scene. The officers saw the customers inside the restaurant through a front window. Three men could be seen seated at a table inside. At the sight of the police, the men got up and two of them left the restaurant as the police entered it. The third man, who matched the description provided by the tipster, headed for the exit where he met up with an officer. The officer called the man by the name Costa and the man confirmed it was him, saying, Yes, it's me. While outside the restaurant, Mr. Costa Leventis, the accused in this case, was detained for investigation and advised of his right to silence and his right to counsel. During a 10-minute detention that followed, the officer made the following observations of Costa. Number one, he frequently held or touched his belt. Although the officer did not see a bulge around Costa's waist, the gestures led the officer to believe that Costa was checking something, wanted to hide something, or was concerned that something would fall. Number two, Costa's phone rang almost constantly. It made sounds indicating it was receiving text messages and calls. Number three, Costa appeared nervous. He was sweating and wanted to leave the premises. The officer also had three years of experience at the time and had been involved in a few drug arrests. He knew that suspected traffickers hid narcotics around their waists, having found drugs hidden in that location before. Based on the anonymous tip, Costa's behavior in connection with his belt and the other observations, the officer believed he had the necessary reasonable grounds that Costa was in possession of drugs. Costa was arrested and searched incidental to the arrest. Under Costa's belt and the elastic of his pants, police found three bags of drugs. 
an electronic scale was found under his belt buckle, and white powder in a folded lottery ticket, $1,560 Canadian cash, and $70 US cash were also found in his possession. In total, 11.6 grams of cocaine and 2.46 grams of crack cocaine was recovered. Costa was charged with two counts of possession for the purpose of trafficking. At his trial in the Court of Quebec, the judge found the arrest was lawful. In the trial judge's view, the arresting officer had the requisite reasonable grounds to justify an arrest under Section 495 of the Criminal Code. Since the arrest was lawful, the search incidental to it was reasonable. There were no charter breaches and the drugs were admissible. Costa was convicted of possessing cocaine and crack cocaine for the purpose of trafficking. He was sentenced to 12 months imprisonment on each count to be served concurrently. He was also placed on probation for three years, prohibited from firearms for 10 years, ordered to provide a DNA sample, and the money seized was forfeited and the drugs destroyed. Costa then appealed his convictions to the Quebec Court of Appeal. He did not contest the legality of the initial investigative detention, but claimed that the trial judge was wrong to conclude the search was reasonable. It was Costa's position that the arrest was unlawful because reasonable grounds for the arrest did not exist. Since the arrest was unlawful, the argument goes, the search incidental to an unlawful arrest is unreasonable. Since Costa did not challenge his investigative detention, meaning he did not allege it was unlawful, the three-member panel of the Court of Appeal simply analyzed the situation from the moment when the arresting officer had the suspicion to detain Costa for the purposes of an investigation. In doing so, the Court of Appeal outlined a number of principles related to reasonable grounds for an arrest. These included the following, and I stress the importance of understanding these principles. Number one, the results of a search never contribute to the assessment of reasonable grounds. In other words, whether or not you find evidence does not bolster or weaken your grounds as the case may be. It's actually a legal error for a judge to conclude that the police had reasonable grounds for an arrest based on the results of a search conducted pursuant to the arrest. A judge cannot simply look to the results of a search as confirmation of the grounds for the arrest, nor do the results of a search confirm the reliability of the information obtained from an informer. The reliability of the tip must stand or fall irregardless of the outcome of the search. Number two, the law of reasonable grounds to arrest requires the police to subjectively have reasonable grounds for making the arrest and those grounds must be objectively justifiable meaning a reasonable person in the position of the police officer must be able to conclude that there were indeed reasonable grounds for the arrest. A subjective belief alone cannot be assessed in isolation and is never sufficient by itself to justify an arrest. A police officer cannot make a lawful arrest if they do not believe reasonable grounds for the arrest exist. The absence of a subjective belief renders an arrest unlawful, irrespective of the existence of objective grounds for the arrest. Nor is the meeting of the objective standard enough by itself. The objective test is whether a reasonable person, standing in the shoes of the officer, would have believed that reasonable grounds to make the arrest existed. So you need both. You must believe an arrest is justified in your own mind, and you also must be able to convince a judge it was reasonable to do so using an objective standard. Number three. An assessment of reasonable grounds requires a consideration of all of the circumstances. Each fact influences other facts to form an overall picture of the situation and of the offense for which the officer is arresting. An officer's training and experience is a factor to consider in the reasonable grounds analysis, but it is not without its limits. Experience-based intuition or an educated guess will not be sufficient. Number four, when the information comes from an informer, whether known or anonymous, the information must be number one, compelling, number two, credible, and number three, corroborated by charter-compliant investigation. In other words, when the police use a tip from a source to justify an intrusion on someone's liberty, whether a search, 
detention, or arrest, courts must scrutinize the tip to see whether its detail is compelling, the informer is credible, and its information is corroborated in any way. These are not watertight inquiries, but the totality of the circumstances must meet the reasonable grounds standard. Weaknesses in one area may be made up by strengths in the others. When the police rely on information coming from an anonymous source, as was the case here, the second inquiry, assessing the credibility of the tipster, is problematic. For example, tips from proven reliable informers require less corroboration than tips from an anonymous or untried informer. With anonymous sources, a court has no way to assess the credibility or reliability of the source. Thus, the quality of the information or how compelling it is and the amount of corroboration must compensate for the inability to assess the credibility of the source. Number five, a police officer does not have to satisfy themselves with a prima facie case of the suspect's guilt. A prima facie case is too high a threshold, but an arrest must be based on something more than mere suspicion or even more than a reasonable suspicion. So just how did the Court of Appeal apply these principles to the facts of the case as the trial judge found them? Well, quite simply, the three judges found the facts did not meet the reasonable ground standard in the circumstances. So let's look at why. The crime itself had not been confirmed in any way. An anonymous person merely asserted a crime. The police had no knowledge about the tipster. There was no evidence about the tipster's motivation for reporting the alleged crime, no evidence about the tipster's reliability, nor was there any evidence about how or the manner in which the tipster obtained the information. For example, did the tipster learn of the information directly, or was it through hearsay? As the Court of Appeal characterized it, the information was nothing more than a bald, conclusory statement. The police could not assume that a crime had been committed by Costa. The information only pointed to an individual that the tipster obviously knew. While this might in some cases be enough to start an investigation, such as taking an interest in Costa and watching him, more was needed to make an arrest. But what about the observations made after police interacted with Costa? Well, the Court of Appeal ruled these additional observations did not justify an arrest. The facts relied upon rested entirely on the officer's perception of them, which did not make it possible for objective verification. The mere fact that a person adjusted their belt and received many calls on their phone did not provide reasonable grounds for arrest. The officer struggled to objectively assess the frequency of the ringtones, differentiate between text messages and calls, and distinguish the relevant distinction between the two or the irrelevance of such a distinction. Importantly, the officer did not explain how the ringtones contributed to forming his reasonable grounds. As for police experience contributing to reasonable grounds for an arrest, the content of the officer's training and experience must be established before a court can take it into account. In this case, the officer only provided a brief explanation of their experience, which was not very useful to objectively assess their highly subjective interpretation of the facts. Apart from the officer's assertion that they participated in a few arrests, the nature of their experience did not demonstrate how Costa's behavior objectively played a particularly distinctive role in drug trafficking. As the Court of Appeal noted, the arresting officer certainly had a good intuition, but it was insufficient in all of the circumstances to justify Costa's arrest. Since the arrest was unlawful, the search was also unlawful and therefore unreasonable under Section 8 of the Charter, and the Crown was unable to show that the search could otherwise be justified. The last thing that had to be decided was whether the drugs found would be excluded as evidence under Section 24.2. In assessing whether evidence should be excluded, a court examines three factors. Number one, the seriousness of the Charter infringing police conduct. Number two, the impact of the breach on the charter-protected interests of the accused, and number three, society's interest in an adjudication of the case on its merits. So, just how serious was the police misconduct in this case? Well, although the police did not act in bad faith, they were ignorant of the scope of their Section 495 Criminal Code Arrest Authority. 
The court found there was no legal uncertainty respecting reasonable grounds for arrest, nor was there any urgency or danger to public safety. The charter violation was described as serious by the Court of Appeal, which favored the exclusion of the drugs. As for the impact of the breach on Costa's charter-protected interests, it too favored exclusion. The expectations of a citizen moving freely or seated in a restaurant are higher than those of a citizen driving a car, and even though the charter violation was short in duration, the brevity of the unlawful arrest was not itself a mitigating factor, nor was the evidence otherwise discoverable without infringing Costa's rights. The final factor, society's interest in having the case judged on its merits, did favor inclusion of the evidence. Costa's crime was not a minor one. Drug trafficking is highly harmful in nature and without the drugs as evidence an acquittal would follow. However, this factor was not sufficient to tip the scales in favor of admitting the evidence because the first two factors, the seriousness of the charter breach and its impact on Costa, strongly favored exclusion. At the end of the day, Costa's appeal was allowed, the drugs obtained from the unlawful search made incidental to the unlawful arrest were excluded, and Costa's conviction was set aside. An acquittal was entered. So what are some of the legal lessons we can learn from this case and others like it? First, it is important to understand the difference between reasonable suspicion, which can justify an investigative detention, and reasonable belief, which can justify an arrest. Reasonable suspicion, the standard that applies to an investigative detention, is a lower, less demanding standard than reasonable grounds for belief and can be based on information that is different in quantity and content than that required to establish the grounds for an arrest. As noted by the Supreme Court of Canada in R.V. Chahill, a drug dog sniff case, While reasonable grounds to suspect and reasonable grounds to believe are similar in that they both must be grounded in objective facts, reasonable suspicion is a lower standard as it engages the reasonable possibility rather than probability of crime. As a result, police officers and judges must be cautious not to conflate or confuse the less demanding reasonable grounds to suspect standard with the more demanding reasonable grounds to believe standard. And even if the two standards aren't mixed up, it can be difficult to apply these legal standards to the particular facts of a situation. Police investigations are often dynamic events. They can unfold quickly and unpredictably. Determining whether there are reasonable grounds for an arrest is not an exact science. Police officers do not have the luxury of judicial reflection as these judges did. But at some point, you will have to make a judgment call, as the officer did here, as to whether there is enough objective evidence to support your arrest without a warrant. And if your arrest is challenged in court, your testimony will be subject to vigorous cross-examination by a lawyer and your decision will be rigorously examined by a judge or even a panel of judges against the reasonable grounds to believe standard. So why not do your best to understand it? Why wouldn't you want to have a solid framework in mind when you make your decisions? If you know the test is coming, why not prepare for it in advance? The second lesson we can learn is that experience matters, but you will have to lay an evidentiary foundation for your experience. Just because you say something is so doesn't mean it is. Evidence as to the specific nature and extent of your experience and training is required, so a court can make an objective assessment of the probative link between the constellation of factors you relied on and the criminality you allege. The more general the constellation of factors relied upon by the police, the more there will be a need for specific evidence regarding police experience and training. Courts will also be cautious in not allowing the experience factor to overwhelm the reasonable grounds analysis. As the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal recently noted in R.V. Santos, quote, While the training and experience of the arresting officer are undoubtedly relevant considerations, they do not form a trump card. Nor does the fact that the officer has certain training and experience remove the need for an objective and critical analysis by a reviewing court. The question is not simply whether this officer, on the basis of their training and experience, believed what they believed, but rather whether it would be reasonable for an officer with the same training and experience to have formed that belief, end quote. Simply put, 
Experience and training will not automatically function as a thread to unquestionably sew a patchwork of circumstances into a quilt of reasonable grounds to believe a person has committed an offense. More is needed. As you move through your career, note and record your experience and training. Be prepared to explain your experiences and training to the judge. Simply saying you were a police officer for X number of years will not be enough. How many drug investigations were you involved with? Why did you interpret a constantly ringing cell phone as indicative of drug trafficking? Is it, as the Supreme Court in R.V. Fearon noted, that cell phones are the bread and butter of the drug trade and the means by which drugs are marketed on the street? We all know cell phones are ubiquitous these days and used by non-criminals, but if you think it is important, you need to spell it out for the judge. Remember, in this case, the Court of Appeal said the officer did not explain how the ringtones contributed to forming reasonable grounds. Although judges are presumed to know the law, they do not know how criminals, drug dealers, and gangbangers operate. You, on the other hand, as a trained police officer, may draw inferences and make deductions which may elude an untrained person. When Supreme Court of Canada Justice Moldaver examined the significance of police experience and training and evaluating its probative value in R.V. McKenzie, another drug dog sniff case, he put it this way, quote, Police officers are trained to detect criminal activity. That is their job. They do it every day. And because of that, a fact or consideration which might have no significance to a lay person can sometimes be quite consequential in the hands of the police. Sights, sounds, movement, body language, patterns of behavior, and the like are part of an officer's stock in trade and courts should consider this when assessing whether their evidence, in any given case, passes the reasonable suspicion threshold. End quote. A similar approach has been taken to the reasonable belief standard, but a more robust explanation will be required since the standard is higher. I think this decision is helpful for two reasons. Number one, it reminds us of the law, including both the similarities and differences in relation to the reasonable ground standards underpinning investigative detention and arrest. And number two, it assists us in understanding how courts, particularly appellate courts, apply these standards to the facts on the ground. It provides you with some insight into what is expected of you when you testify to your grounds for acting. This in turn allows you to prepare yourself for what to look for as your investigations roll out in real time and also how to present your evidence in court. Thanks for listening. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com, legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.